Hello and welcome to the Energy Talk Podcast. My name is Olubomi Olajide and thank you for joining us again this week. On this episode, or the next two episodes actually, because we are doing a new uh, mini-series. Uh, so we have a two-part episode talking about energy in the Middle East. So um, you might not know this, but I actually grew up for the most part in the Middle East. So my family has been in a country called Qatar um, for the last um, 11, 12 years now. And this is where I spent most of my um, pre-teens and adult life. So uh, yeah, so today we're going to talk about the Middle East region and its um, complicated and its ever-growing relationship with energy, how it's adapted over the last few years and where it is right now. In part one of this mini-series, we'll be speaking to Sudhasan Sarati, who is a senior oil analyst based in Dubai who made time for this conversation by the way on the weekend so thank you Sudasan for making time for this I really appreciate it so we'll be talking a lot about the history of energy in the Middle East region and then we we'll go into policy the role of LNG which is liquefied natural gas the petrochemical industry the role of divestments and the broader role of how the Middle East sees itself playing a part in the broader energy transition so let's get to know more about our guest and jump right into the conversation I finished my graduation and I did my master's in business administration in India. And then uh, I got a chance to do an internship with an oil and gas company in the upstream space. So I was part of the business development team there and uh, I worked on a merger kind of deal where uh, we were evaluating some upstream blocks in a country outside of India. And I was very happy for the deal to go through. And it was also a great learning experience for me. Uh, it, I was very surprised to know that close to 80 to 90% of things in our daily life come from oil. And that was something that I didn't know in college or uh, when I was studying. So as I entered the industry, I realized that the energy industry has the potential to change lives over the world. And I've, I, I could see examples of countries which didn't have too many resources, but they were rich in some sort of an energy uh, resource. It could be oil, it could be gas, uh, it could be coal for that matter. Uh, and in current scenario, it can be solar. Uh, they've all pretty much used it effectively to grow their economy. Uh, whether it has resulted in material change in the lives of people can always be debated. But it's no doubt that the economies of those countries have certainly grown. And uh, currently I am in the Middle East, so I can say for the fact that the lives of people have definitely uh, improved way uh, before where it was like, say, 100 years ago. Today, people have a, a really good lifestyle. And I think that's largely to do with the fact that energy markets have evolved through these last 100 years. So after I finished my internship, I realized I had to be in the energy space. And I continued to work in the uh, energy space. I did about three years in upstream oil and gas, and then about three years in a refining uh, industry. I was an analyst there. It was only last year that I moved to the UAE, and I've been working here as a oil market analyst. So I look at the oil market in general. Uh, and in specific about crude oil. So I look at the Middle East and North Africa region as a whole. So that's in short about, uh, about what I've done for my work. Uh, in terms of my interest, I'm very passionate about data and how data could be used for making analytical decisions. 
So that's something that I've been working on throughout my career. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much about me. Something very interesting that you mentioned, I just wanted to go deeper. You mentioned how energy has the potential to just transform lives and transform uh, entire regions. And I think when it comes to that, especially for the last 100 years, as you pointed out, uh, the Middle East is a perfect example of that. It has one of the the, the most rapid development stages in in, in in recent history, and a large part of that has been due to the uh, the oil and gas industry. So uh, today we're going to be talking a lot about the Middle East and about its re- relationship with energy, and in particular with with oil and gas. So uh, could you just give us a a recap about uh, how the Middle East got its start in the energy sector? You mentioned that you currently work in uh, I. I I, I think I can share this, that you're currently in Dubai, that, that that's where you're currently working. So could you just uh, j- just share with us how Energy Middle East has developed over the last century? Sure. Uh, I think crude oil has been there uh, for more than at least a thousand years, just that people probably did not know it was crude oil. There have been uh, texts which show that in ancient China, for example, Deposits of crude oil, which were seen uh, at ground level, at uh, you know, without it, any digging, uh, people have been using that for medicinal purposes. But the first record of any form of uh, development in crude oil market was in the U.S. U.S. Uh, kind of started with the drilling for crude oil because they realized the potential, and there was an impending automobile boom. And uh, I think that's where the entire industry started. For the Middle East, uh, it started somewhere in the 1900s. So in 1901, uh, one Mr. William Darcy, uh, he took up, uh, he actually sold a lot of property and he bet big on oil in the Middle East. And he took the rights for exploration of oil in erstwhile Persia, which is today's Iran. And uh, he actually didn't succeed. He he struggled. He was about to lose a, a major fortune, but then luck struck after like about seven years. In 1908, uh, the first oil in the Middle East was discovered in Iran, and that kind of changed the entire setting. Uh, this was a development which got taken over by British Petroleum, and then slowly you saw a lot of interest coming in from other international oil companies. They came in. They they sold big vision to the governments in the Middle East, the different kings who were in control. And, you know, they, they, they showed them a vision and they started taking over the assets. And uh, it was not until about 1960s till the government stepped in. So for a for a fair bit of time in history, it was the international oil companies or majors who were dominating the scene in the Middle East. Uh, and they, what they used to do is they had a system called posted prices. So they would declare what the price of oil was. And it was not always necessary that the governments knew about the price of oil. And they, and to be fair to the governments, they were not very aware of how oil worked, the industry worked. But then once they started realizing there is a potential for this, and they could see that, I mean, it was a national resource, but somebody else was profiting from it. There was a wave of nationalization that hit the oil sector, especially in the Middle East. And you could see that uh, there were multiple countries which started taking over their oil fields. It could be 
Aramco becoming Saudi Aramco. It could be in the UAE where the government says that, okay, the resources belong to the kingdom uh, and, uh, you know, the producers can probably get a service fee for working on the fields, but you don't get access to the oil. The oil is ours to sell. And in 1960, the OPEC was formed. The OPEC is basically an organization of petroleum exporting countries. Uh, it started off in 1960 as, a, as, as just between five countries. It was Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, and Venezuela. So these were the major producers about that time. And they decided that let's get together and form a block because we are producing oil and we need to get a better deal out of it. And it was it made sense to cooperate. So that's how the OPEC was formed uh, on shared and oil exporting countries. And then slowly you could see multiple countries getting added uh, as the years pass. Every oil producing countries, uh, at least the major ones, started realizing that we need to be a part of this block for our interests to be like fulfilled. And through the course of history, post-1960, the OPEC has been a strong force in the oil markets. There have been times when uh, there's an issue in an OPEC country and you could see oil prices spiking up or uh, if the OPEC countries decide to you know, keep their taps open to say, uh, or if they were overproducing, you could see oil prices crashing. So I, I think it would be fair to say that the oil markets have been highly dependent on the OPEC to serve as a balance, uh, to, to provide balance in the market. And that's the role that OPEC likes to fulfill. They want to be the, the group that can control uh, if there is oversupply, they could curtail it. And if there is, you know, a high amount of demand, they would be able to quickly pump in that volume. And I, I think they've been doing it quite uh, quite well. Uh, though there have been recent, uh, you know, economic issues or uh, due to the pandemic, we see a lot of challenges in the industry. But uh, over a period of 40 or 60 years that the OPEC has been in place, I think they've done a, a good job of regulating the market. Hmm. And I'm just going to prefix the rest of our conversation to say that we're not going to go too deeply into the geopolitics of everything because uh, I think energy geopolitics specifically in this region can get a, a very, very complicated and I don't think we have the time to cover it during this episode. But something that you mentioned very interestingly was when you brought up OPEC and OPEC is still very much um, um, centered around Saudi Arabia with it being in in many of the leadership positions and it played a major role as you said in the pandemic with um with the i, I think the one intervention that made the headlines was the all price war with russia and uh, a lot has stabilized since then so um in terms of of the middle east region now um how has the markets really developed because it has come a very long way in the last um hundred years and everything is a lot more fleshed out and there are a lot of new concepts right now that is playing a major role that wasn't in place a hundred years ago things like the energy transition things like climate change so how does this really affect the landscape in the region now uh that's a very interesting question and i think uh to be fair to the oil producers i think they've started taking cognizance of this what was there Till about two, three years back, there was complete denial about energy transition to today where after the pandemic or uh, ha having seen the impact of just one event wiping off economic growth globally, 
I think uh, the latest outlooks provided even by OPEC have taken into account that there could be, you know, a potential plateauing of oil demand growth. That doesn't necessarily mean that oil goes out of the equation or the fact that, uh, you know, oil demand will drop. It just means that the growth will slow down. And they have attributed that to not just due to energy transition, but it could be a variety of factors. Uh, so, yes, I think there is uh, slowly uh, gaining momentum in the analysis that people are doing to incorporate, you know, alternate energy sources for that matter. There has also been a move towards, a conscious move towards cleaner fuels, uh, even even in terms of the kind of products that get produced, they're looking towards cleaner fuels and gas is a big driver. Uh, there's been enough talk even in the Middle East going about how gas could be a potential fuel of the future. So uh, yes, I think people are taking uh, all these small developments into account. Before we go into talking about natural gas, I just want to just go back again to the development that the Middle East has enjoyed because of um, of the, the the energy market specifically. Uh, so I am in Qatar and I have spent a lot of my, um, the last 10 years my family has been here and I have seen very, very well how, how, much, how much of a difference it's been uh, coming from a country like Nigeria to Qatar to see how, how they properly utilize their their resources and you mentioned that uh, that nationalization has played a very key role and that's a very important policy aspect that other countries haven't really um managed as well as the um as the middle east region so i just want to know what what other policy plays have played really major role in the region really establishing themselves because um the middle east isn't the only region that has been blessed or cursed with the um with the oil and gas resources, depending on how you look at it, but they have managed to take a very different trajectory from the rest of the world. So I just want to get your opinion about that. Um, so if we divide the uh, the hydrocarbon resources globally, uh, you could see chunks of geographies where, uh, like you pointed out, the resources are uh, abundant. It could be in North America, it could be in South America. Uh, in Africa, I think it would be West Africa, like Nigeria, Angola, or it is in North Africa. The Europe earlier had a lot of uh, potential, but over years of production, I think, and lesser investment, uh, it, there's not enough growth in terms of the resources there. Uh, so the emphasis has come to areas like Africa and Middle East in the last 20 years for supplying uh, the oil market demand. And if you look at the major demand centers, the US is a major consumer of oil. But in the last 10 to 20 years, you've seen a radical shift in how Asian demand has gone up. And that, I think, is a crucial factor in the Middle East maintaining its pot uh, its potential and its position as a key supplier. And that's because of the proximity of the Middle East to the demand center, which is Asia. Going forward, I think all projections show that Asia is going to be where oil demand growth or even for that matter, gas demand growth is going to come from. So that clearly points out that if you are a or a refiner or somebody who consumes energy in Asia, you would look to minimize your transport cost. And the Middle East is pretty close by. So uh, by taking energy from the Middle East, you're reducing your freight cost. That is a major advantage. In terms of the policy of the governments, I think 
we can't say a, a number as such, but uh, I would say that across across the countries in the Middle East, there has been a welfare state established where, where the governments have, uh, you know, used the wealth that they've gotten from oil uh, in kind of creating a social structure. And that has percolated into the economy for sure. And I think that differentiates the Middle East from regions like, say, West Africa, where probably the the resources have not gone back uh, in some form or the other to the people. In the Middle East, I think the governments have ensured that, um, you know, they spend on on welfare, on uh, education, healthcare for people. And slowly they're also deploying the funds gained from oil into other industries. They want to promote uh, other industries because they realize that they can't be overly reliant on, on just oil and gas, but they have consciously started investing in uh, other industries. So I think that is a kind of a policy differentiator in my opinion. Earlier, you mentioned a radical shift in terms of how um, the, the the energy industry is reacting, specifically around uh, talking and uh, and making action plans around the energy transition and climate change. And uh, right now, there's a very interesting shift in the way that um, that the oil and gas is moving towards where natural gas has been presented as this transi- transitional fuel that has uh, lower carbon emissions but could still meet um, energy demands for the future. And even with that, the Middle East is still emerging up as a leader in in in, in developing LNG markets, specifically with Qatar uh, coming up quite prominent in that area. And also, as you mentioned, the proximity to the major demand drivers, which is um, China and Asia. So uh, could you just talk about this? Because right now, I think LNG is playing a more prominent role, and that's, that's natural gas, liquefied natural gas for the listeners. So I'd just like to hear your opinions about that. Uh, yes, definitely. I think... In the last 20 years, the investments, and especially in the last 10 years, the investments that have gone into kind of creating LNG infrastructure has been massive. Uh, There's been a lot of development in places like the US and there have been some fines in Russia. Uh, This has kind of spurned investment in liquefaction. So uh, just to give a heads up to the listeners, gas, unlike oil cannot be transported directly. It needs to either be compressed or it needs to be liquefied uh, for it to be transported. And uh, so LNG is liquefied natural gas. So methane, which is natural gas, is kind of liquefied. And then it is loaded onto specially built tankers where the fuel continues to remain cooled so that it remains in form before it reaches the final destination and is reconverted into gas because you cannot use the liquid directly. You need to convert it back into gas for it to be consumed. Uh, This whole chain of investment has been significant. So if you look at uh, 20 years back or even even about 5 to 10 years back, uh, because of this large amount of investment that needed to be uh, put in upfront for these developments to take place, the sellers of LNG wanted long-term agreements. They wanted a 20-year or a 30-year commitment from buyers at a at a fixed price or a fixed formula. And not always did it work in the favor of buyers, especially in like say current markets, for example, when the prices of all fuels have fallen, if you were locked in a long-term contract, it didn't turn out to be beneficial as a buyer. Uh, so there was always this kind of uh, cat and mouse game to say 
where buyers were hesitant to put in the uh, long-term agreements and the sellers were not keen on investing without having a firm commitment. But that has changed, I think, in the last five to ten years where uh, there's been enough investment with new fines coming in the U.S. especially. Uh, the Middle East is no exception. I think the Middle East has understood that gas has a, a good potential. So the, uh, as a quick statistic, I could say that over 38% of the global gas reserves, proved reserves, are found in the Middle East. So that's pretty significant. But if you actually look at how much gets exported, it's it's not uh, it's a, it's not a significant chunk in terms of their reserve potential. And that's largely to do with the fact that most of this gas comes in from uh, something called as associated gas. So when you produce oil, you also get gas. And till about in recent times, this was not being used effectively. But once people started realizing that even gas can be a, a effective fuel, I think uh, con- companies like Aramco and Adnoc, they've started making efforts to ensure gas developments uh, to feed their domestic industries where gas can replace oil. And there has been enough investments in that space. So I would, I would think that there is a move towards LNG and gas. And I would just like to talk a bit more about this because uh, I I think there are much more broader implications because uh, I think for for anybody who isn't really in the oil and gas industry and they just go off the recent headlines, I think the one thing that they become very privy to is the volatility in the oil prices, specifically when uh, when uh, the uh, the Brent prices in the U.S. reach negative for the first time, and the oil industry has enjoyed very very highs of like a hundred and twenty dollar per barrel oil and down very low right now to about $40 per barrel. And uh, is this is this volatility also reflected in the LNG markets? And how would this shift? Because you mentioned about having more flexible um, contract agreement. Is this is this going to be the way that the industry is going to be shifting towards? And is it being accelerated in any way by the shutdown and the pandemic that we're going through? Uh, I, think, I think we've already started witnessing a change in the way the buyers and sellers interact in LNG. So what used to be only only long-term agreements has now uh, seen a fair amount of spot deals happening. So a spot contract is where you don't have a long-term agreement, but you have a requirement in the next one or two months and you go into the market and you buy a cargo. So uh, the spot market is starting to become a lot more mature than where it was. And a good spot market shows that uh, you know you're not dependent only on a long-term agreement. I think that maturity is starting to come into LNG. And earlier, what say if you're an Asian importer, you were kind of benchmarking it against crude. So the LNG that you were buying was kind of uh, had a formula that had a linkage to crude oil. But today there. Uh, different formulas that are being offered because clearly it is a buyer's market. There is a lot of oversupply and uh, the sellers are finding innovative ways of structuring deals. So I think it is a move in the sense that uh, you're kind of reducing the volatility by linking it to oil and you're just pricing it as the fuel should be priced on, on its inherent nature. So Yes, there has been volatility till date, but I think as markets evolve, as the uh, as globally we start having more hubs for gas trading, I think we should start seeing the delinkage from oil. 
Hmm. And that's very interesting. And uh, while we have you here, I just want to talk about something that uh, might, might also have been in the headlines that uh, I think many people outside of the oil and gas space and the energy space might have heard of, but they might not necessarily are know how to relate it to, to um, the real world. So that is the, the concept of peak oil. And right now it's something that is a lot very relevant, especially when you like talking about in the context of the middle east so uh if you don't mind i just want you to just go into um just just give a brief uh explanation of on what peak oil is and how it could potentially affect the middle east as a region and the oil and gas markets uh a bit more broadly mm, sure so peak oil is is a concept where uh, uh, you know people feel that that is when the maximum oil demand will be there and after that the oil demand will start to go away and this has been there in uh, you know every 50 years people keep saying that okay peak oil is going to come in the next 50 years or next 20 years and uh, that's that timeline has kept reducing uh, because people have now started realizing that okay there is more alternatives to oil that are coming up but still i think the estimates range anywhere between somebody saying that by 2030 oil will start to decline to people saying that till 2050 oil demand growth will be there. So, you, I mean, I think it depends on uh, which side of the market you are in that your forecast vary, right? Uh, if you're a producer, you would want the peak oil to be as late as possible. And uh, if <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's be honest there. And uh, if you a person from the renewable space, you would tend to believe that peak oil is immediate because that's the kind of narrative you would want to build upon. So I think both sides have uh, some valid points and in some cases, clear biases. Uh, in my opinion, having been in the industry, it does not make sense to look at uh, a peak oil as a particular year or a particular uh, range of years. I think what people should realize is it's a concept which shows that no investment should be done without a proper uh, analysis done. So if you're going to make an investment, you need to be very clear that there is going to be certain demand for the product that you're going to produce, right? So mm. I, I think that also reflects in the kind of investments that, um, you know, the oil companies have been doing. Uh, like, for example, uh, Aramco, they've gone ahead and invested a lot of money in uh, buying refining assets across the world. And uh, they're still looking to buy refining assets. Or there are companies which are looking to, you know, move towards a more integrated approach to refining, not just produce transport fuels, but look at making petrochemicals because petrochemical demand is still expected to grow. So oil is the base for petrochemicals. As long as there is demand for plastics, as long as there's demand for a lot of other petrochemical uh, use cases, there is going to be demand for oil. So I think what is more important for people to realize is where are the end use uh, markets which are going to grow, which are the markets which are going to grow and look at how can the industry cater to those segments, right? So if you're looking at petrochemicals, do I invest more in converting my oil directly into chemicals? And that's something that a lot of refiners are focusing on. Uh, so I think that's a more pragmatic approach. And to, to be honest, in this uh, pandemic scenario, if you look at the refining margins of people who had only produced, uh, say, diesel and 
uh, and gasoline versus refiners who had you know a petrochemical downstream you would see that the latter have performed better uh, that's because there has been an increasing demand for uh, single time single usage plastics for example or ppes because the healthcare professionals need ppes so on one side you could say that plastics are bad but uh, in a in a pandemic scenario plastics have actually helped several frontline frontline workers uh, healthcare workers actually so i think that has provided support to the markets and i think that's the long term view and i actually think that's very interesting because i i think uh, looking at the downstream industry um really shows how how um the oil and gas sector really plays key roles in uh not just everyday lives but in in very different ways and i think just just because these are more nuanced ways that people aren't very um aware of unless they're really looking very critically at it it's something that uh, that people don't appreciate especially when you're trying to talk about how can we um we uh reduce our dependence on fossil fuels generation in general especially going towards the future and uh this all adds up to a very interesting conversation and uh Right now, I actually want to get into um, um, divestments, if because <laughs> I think this is this is another interesting angle to discuss. So the Middle East obviously has has a lot of uh, if you, if you're looking at it in, in terms of uh, just like uh, company bases, they have a lot of capital to invest in different things, and they're trying to diversify what their what their economies is really based around. Because right now it's a lot a lot focused on energy, and if you're just looking about energy investments, the UAE has uh, deployed its very first nuclear power plant, and they've also gone very deeply into developing uh, solar farms as well on a utility scale. And this is a trend that we're starting to see kind of like spread out. And I just want to get your opinion on that. It, is, this, is this going to be something that's going to be a lot more common where the, the, the Middle East tries to diversify itself further out of the oil and gas market? Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, I, I do agree. So the, uh, like you rightly pointed out, the Baraka nuclear plant was the first in the region in terms of producing um electricity from nuclear uh, source and there has been an increased presence of solar farms in the country and that's not just in the UAE you see a lot of developments happening in Saudi Arabia for that matter uh, so there is a, a, a deliberate push towards including a lot more variety of sources of energy into the mix and that's also not just from a point of view that probably they believe in renewables it's also probably for the fact that uh, it opens up for them to move away from consuming the oil or the gas that they produce domestically but rather let them export it so say if you are in the uae or in saudi arabia for that matter if you're consuming the oil that you produce uh, to burn a power plant and like to produce electricity that's not a very efficient way if you could use solar power to generate electricity and that frees up a certain quantum of you know oil to be exported you're adding value to the economy right i think that is also one of the reasons why this transition is happening they've realized that there is ample potential for solar in this region so solar is a major investment uh, gas is something that i don't think we've touched upon in detail in this talk but uh, in terms of gas also there has been a lot of uh, talk going on about how they can improve gas in the mix so for, for that matter um, the uae announced a discovery called uh, the jabal ali gas field 
this is located somewhere in between uh, Abu Dhabi and Dubai. And this is one of the largest finds in history, in recent history, uh, onshore gas find. So this shows that there is a lot of emphasis on creating gas as a as a part of the energy mix, right? Uh, same way in Saudi Arabia, there was a find called Jafura. Again, that's that was a large find, and they are looking at ways to monetize it. Um, they're they're in discussion with a lot of players on how best the field can be monetized. Uh, apart from that, Aramco has uh, they they did want to commit to buying LNG from the US, though the current scenario has kind of pushed those uh, talks away. They had signed some uh, uh, an agreement to kind of explore source energy from the US. Probably if the markets pick up again, I think come into fray because Aramco's trading arm called ATC, they did hire a few LNG traders also. I think there is a conscious move in uh, including gas uh, as part of the energy mix. Solar, yes, definitely, because the region has a lot of potential. So I think these two could be a, a major driver in the future. That's that's actually very interesting, and uh, you actually brought up a new perspective to this conversation because uh, I actually didn't think about them investing in other energy sources as a way to uh, to drive more exports. So that's actually a very very interesting uh, observation there. And I just want to ask, like further for, for your for your insights on this as an analyst looking very broadly at the markets, focusing on uh, the Middle East and North Amer- and, and North Africa. Uh, what do you see as as uh, as as pathways for the region to just uh, survive through the energy transition? Because I think um, for for many mainstream conversations, it's it 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 always goes like um, for for renewables to do well, it means that oil has to do very badly, and if oil does badly, that greatly affects the the value generation of for the for the Middle East. So, so I just want to get your opinion about that and how you are looking at it specifically. Uh, like like I said in an earlier answer, I think uh, the conversation tends to get more radical uh, depending on which side of the spectrum you tend to be in. Uh, I don't think it has to be a, a you know a loose loose scenario where only if uh, or a zero sum game. It doesn't have to be that renewables gain on the expense of oil, and oil has to fail for renewables to grow. I think uh, I think slowly there will be a coexistence so to say, oil will continue to exist, renewables will continue to grow. And I think globally, uh, one one thing that people don't realize is that in a lot of countries, especially in the developing economies, the energy still, the per capita consumption of energy is still nowhere to where it is for developed countries. So if not realizing their full potential, the amount of energy that will be needed globally is something probably not being factored in at a very granular level. So I think there is enough scope for uh, oil, gas in terms of LNG and also for renewables to be there because that's how we will meet the energy challenge globally. Because um, renewables or or any other energy form should also not come at the cost of depriving a region or a country of economic growth just because they find it difficult to invest in those sources. I think... I think that maturity will set into both the oil industry and the renewables industry in realizing that uh, they're not a threat to each other, but rather they complement each other really well. End of day, 
the energy industry is what drives economies and without energy there's no life so that's my take on it thank you for making time for this episode i really appreciate you listening in i hope you learned something new about the energy sector in the middle east and how it's going to be adapting and um, shaping itself up for the future um so we have a part two where we go much deeper into a specific case study of qatar um so you should also listen to that it's also a very very educational episode uh if you did enjoy this episode don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you can enjoy a lot more content around energy and i hope you have a wonderful week also don't forget to follow us on instagram twitter or linkedin at the energy talk anywhere or email us our email is in the show notes of this episode so you can get in touch with us if you have any ideas or if you have any episodes you think we cover in the future so i'll hop over to part two if you can right now and look forward to seeing you again thank you so much and have a lovely day